showtime, folks. You believe in love? I believe in saying I love you. It helps you concentrate. Joe, they've asked me to go on tour with the show. How long? Six months. What do you think? And you say it all the time. <laughs> I say it a lot. A lot. When? When it works. You know, I love you, Katie, but I think you have to do what's best for you. Just what do you mean, Joe? Sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, for your sake, I think you should go. Oh, Michael? It's, uh, Katie. <laughs> so, um, did you mean it about dinner? Wally's at 11? You're surprised. I'm a little surprised. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Mike. Bye-bye. I'm a little surprised, too. Isn't that nice? Now we're all a little surprised. Who was that? Michael Graham. Who was Michael Graham? The dancer in my ballet class. Straight or gay? What do you mean? I mean, is he looking to get laid, or is he looking for Mr. Wright? He's straight. And tall. Michael Graham is a very tall name. God damn it! How dare you use my phone, my telephone, to call somebody who's not gay? Oh, I see. You can go out with any girl, any girl in town. That's right. I go out with any girl in town. I stay in with you. Ah, oh, Joe, it's not fair. Oh, I'm spilling everything. The coffee—it's all wrong. Everything is all wrong. <laughs> You know, that's some set of rules you had for her. Yeah, I know. I know. But as long as you could get away with it, right? Right. Ah, Joe, I don't want to go out with Michael Graham. I don't want a date. I have no more small talk left. I don't want to fool around. I don't want to play games. And I don't want to fight. I just want to love you. I try to give you everything I can give. Oh, you give all right. Presents, clothes. I just wish you weren't so generous with your cock. That's good. I can use that sometime. Katie, I'm on the goddamn tour. I don't think you should go. 
<laughs> Wrong reading. Softly and with feeling. Don't go. Please. <laughs> Why do you suppose you put up with it? Oh, I can think of many reasons for wanting to be with you. Now, don't bullshit a bullshitter. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 350. All That Jazz. And this is listener request number 51, courtesy of Dr. Steven. And Dr. Steven, it's showtime, folks. (laughs) I wrote the same thing. This is crazy. We've passed 50 listener requests. We've hit 350 main episodes, which is nuts. This is the first time that we've recorded in this location. We're in a special spot. Mm -hmm. For those of you maybe not from the western Pennsylvania area, you can bring up your Google Maps and look up Emlinton, Pennsylvania and Foxburg, Pennsylvania. We're right between the two, right along the... Which river is this? I don't know, but we're... One of the three rivers of Pittsburgh that goes out here. (laughs) We're closer to Foxburg. Yes. Barely. So we're in a little cabin by the river. Mm -hmm. One of our other friends was here. He left, so now we're recording an episode. There's no rest for the wicked, even on our little getaways. No, but it's fun to take the show on the road and kind of got a little unique atmosphere going here. We got the fireplace going... Got a little glass of bourbon next to me. Very cozy. Yeah, so you may notice a difference in the volume, a difference in the sound quality, things of that nature, ambiance, noise. It sort of feels like we should be recording Evil Dead or something and not all that jazz, but we're going to make it work. By the way, Dr. Steven shouldn't be confused with the other Steven. We have another Steven coming up later with a different request, which is why he's been designated Dr. Steven. Yep. Before we discuss all that jazz, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. We would love for you to send us an email, greatestpod at gmail.com. I'll be reading some at the end of this episode. So do not delay. Get your email to us today, greatestpod at gmail.com. If you'd like a free sticker, as always, let us know on X slash Twitter or via email, and we'll send that out to you for free. Oh. And finally, Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. Yeah, we saw a movie today. I, I got to check that in still. That's right, and we'll be discussing it during recommendations. Uh-huh. And it's going to be a busy week, folks, so hold on to your butts. Right now, the plan is to release another episode at some point during Thanksgiving, it probably won't be there for you in the morning, but we'd like to do one more this week, so hopefully that will actually happen. It's a lot of work to cram in in a short amount of time, but 
I think it'll be a really fun Thanksgiving episode. Definitely. It's one that I've wanted to do for a little while. and It's one I've been putting off watching for a while, so I'm happy to watch it. It's very of the moment. Yeah, it's a good beginning of winter yep. kickoff. Anyway, let's get into all that jazz. 1979, directed by... Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse. His final musical film and his final film that he did the choreography for... Written by Fosse and Robert Allen Arthur. Budget of $12 million, Box office, $37.8 million. And you would say it's a very personal film. For sure. Definitely. Autobiographical in a way that feels very strange and yeah. intimate and unique. The budget blew up from $6.5 million to $10 million. Director Bob Fosse went over budget before filming the famous Bye Bye Life finale. Columbia Pictures refused to give him any more money. <laughs> At an impasse, Columbia execs privately showcased much of what already was shot for the president of 20th Century Fox. Impressed, he agreed that Fox would finance the remainder of the shoot. Wow. He also asked for and received distribution and cable rights. Profits from the picture were split according to the contract between the two studios, although Fox received top billing over Columbia in the credits. I can understand why they'd be hesitant to dole out money for this, though. It's hard to really tell how something like this would do. Yeah. There was probably a lot of thought that this thing could turn into a disaster because it's such a self-indulgent, narcissistic ego trip that's unlike anything, really. And it's strange, and it's certainly not overly uplifting. Yeah. Although Fosse did have a track record by this point. He'd already done Cabaret well, that's and true. several other popular films. For those of you who have never seen all that jazz or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast it is now currently streaming for free ho oh. on Tubi How oddly enough wow and a nice criterion edition exists of it as well all that jazz was nominated for 9 academy awards winning 4 the film triumphed in the categories of best art direction set decoration best costume design best film editing and best music original song score and its adaptation or best adaptation score Really a, an award that rolls right off the tongue. Seriously, It was also nominated for Best Picture, which it lost to Kramer versus Kramer. Best Actor for Roy Scheider, which it lost to Dustin Hoffman in Kramer versus Kramer. Best Director for Fosse, also lost to KVK, wow. Robert Benton. Kramer versus Kramer just cleaning up that year. Best Original Screenplay for Fosse and Arthur, which it lost to Breaking Away, which was written by Stephen Tessick. And Best Cinematography for Giuseppe Rotono, which it lost to Apocalypse Now, Vittorio Storaro. All right. In addition to all that jazz, Kramer versus Kramer breaking away in Apocalypse Now, this was the year of Manhattan starting over The China Syndrome, The Rose, Alien, and Norma Ray. Producer and co-writer Robert Allen Arthur received two posthumous Oscar nominations for his work in the movie. He passed away on November 20th, 1978 during production of the film ah. while trying to edit Lenny and choreograph Chicago in 1974 Fosse suffered a massive heart attack and underwent open heart surgery after recovering Fosse became interested in the subject of life and death and hospital behavior alongside his friend Robert Allen Arthur they set out to make a film adaptation of ending by Hilma Wolitzer, which had similar themes of death and marital problems. However, after completing the screenplay, Fosse decided against making it a film as he found the material too depressing and felt he wasn't strong enough to stick with it for over a year. 
Still wanting to dive into that subject matter, though, and wanting to use what he felt were his best tools of song and dance, he decided to make a film based on his own experiences with making Lenny and Chicago. The story's structure closely mirrors Fosse's own health issues at the time and is often compared to Fellini's Eight and a Half, yeah. another thinly veiled autobiographical film with fantastic elements. I did watch Siskel and Ebert talking about this movie, and Siskel liked it and Ebert didn't really, but they were both comparing it to Eight and a Half. Yeah, there was definitely some negative reactions, negative reviews. I don't know that everyone quite knew how to react to something like this. It yeah. was a straight-up trauma dump in a way that was not really common or seen very much yet. It's art catharsis, unrestrained ego. Mm-hmm. He is the center of this world in so many ways, and he definitely highlights his best features. But it's interesting because he's certainly not shy about highlighting his worst features as well. Totally. All that jazz sometimes kind of feels like a precursor to the modern age of vanity, but still stuffed with all this talent, which is what makes it palatable, because I think anything less than this level, you would think this is ridiculous at a certain point. Well, yeah. I definitely see the eight and a half comparisons and sort of the chaotic self-assessment, but I know this movie, there's a lot of surreal elements to it, but there's also a lot of parts of it that feel as real as anything you've ever seen. Very documentary style through a lot of the parts, but then also mixed in with these bizarre, not real song and dance numbers. It's a blend of the fantastical with an unflinching, more grotesque side of life and death, where it's also sort of comedic, but tragic. It wears both masks, if you will, if you want to be that Well, yeah, he's sort of making a lot of jokes about him dying. Yeah, there's a self-awareness that counteracts the self-indulgence. Right. Like, we know that this is jacking yourself off. This is, like, straight masturbatory yeah. indulgence. But the self-awareness allows there to be humor. It allows you to still like this character, even though Joe Gideon seems like you would hate him. Yeah. There and is, I think he does dealing ha- with him, it would probably be difficult. Right. He does have a charm. I do think that if... It- this character wasn't directed by Fosse, Gideon would be way more hateable. You're seeing himself from his perspective. Yeah. Whereas I'm sure there's a lot more people that probably worked with him that thought he was a dick. Oh, for sure. Definitely. But he doesn't really seem like that big of a dick, at least from a boss director standpoint in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot lot to deal with, but he doesn't seem like... I think that by today's standards, he would probably be canceled. Oh, I'm sure. For... Some of his behavior person in his well, personal life, but stuff. also the bullying of the dancers. Yeah, yeah. All of that stuff was straight out of his life, and mm-hmm. we'll mention it. In fact, it's weird, too, because there's this meta quality to his work, which is self-evident because all of these people are either real or based off of real people or real events or real things ripped straight out of his life. But the fact that he seemingly acknowledges a lot of his own shortcomings... As you were kind of saying, I I think there's probably more that aren't there. But there still is a lot of shit that when you peel back all the bluster and the fluff, he's basically just saying, I'm going to die. It's my own fault. And I'm trying to come to grips with whether or not it was even worth it, which I think it doesn't even have to be art. But anybody who basically sacrifices their life for something 
uh-huh. has to come to grips. Yeah. A lot of times it is worth it. You may sacrifice your life for your family or your friends or your wife or your daughter or son or something. And that, of course, makes sense. But if you sacrifice your life for your job or for your art. And seeking further social acceptance, praise. Well, that's part of his drive yeah. in the art. But yeah, I think you have to decide whether or not it's worth it. I'm not saying that I know the answer or even that he knew the answer. Because I think that it's the debate. in order to be this guy, this mm-hmm. artist, this performer, it had to be like this. There yeah. was no way of doing it differently. Even though he probably had a lot of regrets as he was building towards the end of his life, the truth is that if he had done things differently, he probably would not have created what he created or been who he was. Sure, You have That's to accept the, the good and yeah. the bad with these things. Upon the film's release in 79, director Stanley Kubrick reportedly called it the, quote, best movie I think I've ever seen. Oh, that's high praise. My initial reaction to that was thinking that he probably related to it in a lot of ways. Oh, I'm sure. I I think that Kubrick probably thought of himself as very similar. An obsessive type, very involved in his work. Fosse, a kindred spirit of his. It's all about obsession, perfection, destroying yourself and your life and the pursuit of your art and your craft. I think we know enough about Kubrick to think that he probably did the same. There was a little bit of a run of this in the wake of other artists being influenced by Eight and a Half and then coming into their own prominence. Woody Allen, around the same time period, did Stardust Memories, Uh which is kind of similar. There's a... A lot of stuff going on with the making of movies and the tortured artist at the center of it, that kind of a thing. Fosse was certainly aware of and perhaps even courting the comparisons to Eight and a Half and was willing to display the influence prominently because Giuseppe Rotono, who did the cinematography for All That Jazz, regularly worked with Fellini as his cinematographer. According to Shirley MacLaine in her autobiography, My Lucky Stars, the idea for this movie was hatched when Bob Fosse was hospitalized for a heart attack. MacLaine claims she was the one who gave him the idea to do a musical about his death, though she said Fosse seemed to not remember this later. Well, there you go. However, Fosse did offer her the role of Audrey Paris, she wrote. (laughs) Sounds like one of my type of stories. (laughs) Where I'm like, yeah, I said that, and the person doesn't remember. Joe Gideon, played by Roy Scheider, is a theater director and choreographer trying to balance staging his latest Broadway musical, NYLA, is what I'm going to call it. That's what they usually say in the movie. It's written in a way where you could say it New York, LA, I guess. Yeah. NY slash LA. While also editing a Hollywood film he has directed called The Stand Up. He is an alcoholic, a driven workaholic who chain smokes cigarettes, and a womanizer who constantly flirts and has sex with a stream of women. Each morning, he starts his day by playing a tape of Vivaldi while taking doses of Visine, Alka-Seltzer, and Dexedrine, always finishing by looking at himself in the mirror and telling himself, it's showtime, folks. You can feel the exhaustion. It's palpable. Yeah, it's already there when yeah. the movie starts and then just gets worse. The other piece of the womanizing is he's clearly taking advantage of his position. Yeah, and that's a huge part of Time's Up and Me Too and all of that stuff. And it's not an excuse, and I'm certainly not letting him or anyone else off the hook, but it's a familiar refrain, and I, I think there is some truth to it. It just was looked on as something completely different back then, and... 
the culture was different and it was wrong, but it's just the way that it was. Definitely. And the fact that he was so openly putting it in this film, I think is enough evidence to suggest that this was just how the world was. Sure. It's been speculated the movie's trademark line, it's Showtime, folks, is the moment the Dexedrine kicks in for Joe Gideon. It is IR, meaning instant release, and as a powerful amphetamine, induces feelings of tremendous focus and a euphoria in under an hour of ingestion. Richard Dreyfus was originally cast in the role of Joe Gideon, but departed wow. from the production during the rehearsal stage, citing a lack of confidence in the production. He later admitted that he made a mistake in passing up the chance to work with Bob Fosse. Wow, it was a, a Jaws rotating cast. Bob Fosse considered playing the lead role himself. Producer David H. Melnick pointed out that Fosse, who had a history of heart problems, wouldn't survive the shoot. And Columbia Pictures did not originally want Scheider for the role of Gideon. They wanted Warren Beatty or a more critically acclaimed actor for the part. Okay. Fosse stuck to his choice and fought for Scheider, eventually securing him the lead. I will say I I did watch a a brief interview with Bob Fosse talking about this movie, and you're like, okay, yeah, it's not that it's just a personal story to him. Roy Scheider is definitely playing Bob Fosse. Definitely, and it seems like... There was a little bit of uncertainty surrounding Scheider as a choice beyond even just the studio, but Fosse felt something, and he wasn't even sure why. Uh He just felt like this was the right guy, and he really latched on to Scheider. But there was also Jack Lemmon, Paul Newman, John Voight, Alan Bates, Gene Hackman, Robert Blake, George Siegel, Alan Alda, Jack Nicholson, and Elliot Gould. Wow. All in consideration for the role of Gideon. There's a couple other guys I could see in this role. Yeah, but not necessarily everyone on that list. No, no. One of the first lines to be on the wire is life, the rest is waiting, is a voiceover as a man is falling from a high wire into a net, and the speaker then admits he did not make this up. The quote is generally attributed to Carl Walenda, who passed away the year before the movie came out when he fell from a high wire without a net. It's a strange juxtaposition to put some of Roy Scheider's more masculine known roles like Sorcerer or Jaws up against this film. It's not what you would expect out of Scheider if you've never seen it. It's very different from a lot of his other parts. Yeah. He definitely had quite a run in the 70s, though. Yeah, he was definitely one of the big-time people for a minute jaws french connection you could definitely look like more of a regular guy yeah yeah like a dad who lives down the block Mm -hmm. back then right and be an actor be a star get parts i think it's a pretty solid performance he somehow pulls it off and it's surreal if you know him from jaws and other things first and then watch this because it was really hard to imagine what it was going to be like before seeing it yeah when you see what this movie is even just looking at the logo for it all that jazz with like the bright Light white bulbs. lights. Yeah. yeah. And then you read the back and you see it's Broadway and you are just like, really the sheriff from Jaws? How is this going to work? <laughs> Many of the characters in the movie are based on real life characters from the New York theater world. Aside from Roy Scheider, Leland Palmer's character. How about that name? Was based on his wife slash frequent star Gwen Vierden. John Lithgow's character was also based somewhat on New York theater director Michael Bennett, the director of Dreamgirls, with whom Bob Fosse had a long-standing rivalry. The character of producer Jonesy Heck was based on Fosse's fellow longtime rival Harold Prince. Anne Reinking was more or less playing herself. 
The character of songwriter Paul Dan is a swipe at Stephen Schwartz, with whom Fosse had unhappily worked on Pippin. Jules Fisher, the lighting designer on many of Fosse's shows, and later the producer of his show Dancin, makes an appearance as a lighting designer in the scene with Lithgow. The movie is based on Fosse's real-life heart attack while both editing his movie Lenny and simultaneously directing the original 1975 Broadway production of Chicago. There's definitely an authentic feel to the characters that are in this movie. They all seem like they are these people. life. The rest is waiting. That's very theatrical, Joe. Yeah, I know. Did you make it up? I wish I had. You like it? Well, it's all right. It's showtime, folks. opening is chaotic dare i say altman-esque and then it never comes back from being chaotic in the wake of doing dr t and the women it's a cattle call a big audition for a bunch of dancers got that song playing on broadway plays over it so you don't end up hearing a lot of the action i guess that scheiter had an earpiece in his ear and fossey would direct him during this in order to make it look like he knew what he was doing i made the comment earlier but when i was saying a documentary style feel to some of this movie this yeah. scene in particular well like i'm this. sure that other than roy scheider most of those people had done that exactly yeah yeah they had been dancers they had been on stages they had auditioned it all looked pretty real definitely we're being introduced to not only joe gideon but also the producers some financial backers they're watching the casting call as well i noticed a girl in the crowd that really looked like olivia wilde and i was like what the fuck it was strange because it looked like her, but it couldn't be. Obviously, yeah. she wasn't even born yet. <laughs> Joe's ex-wife, Audrey Paris, played by Leland Palmer, yeah. is involved with the production of the show, but disapproves of his womanizing ways. And I loved that actress in this. Yeah, and she really was not a film actress. I no, think I she know. was mostly Broadway. <laughs> the name being Leland Palmer for Twin Peaks fans is, is strange. I know. Talk about surreal. But me being someone not overly familiar with 
the Bob Fosse stuff. I had seen this film before. I've seen a few of his other films, mm-hmm. but I didn't know a lot of this information. I didn't even know what Gwen Vierden looked like, so I Googled a picture of the real Gwen Vierden, and I was surprised at how much Leland Palmer actually looked like her. Yeah. It was <laughs> shocking. I was confused <laughs> at what I was looking at at first. Then I realized they weren't the same person, but they look a lot alike. Right. Meanwhile, his girlfriend, Katie Jagger, played by Anne Reinking, and daughter Michelle, whom Joe more or less constantly disappoints, yeah. keep him company. In his imagination, Joe flirts with someone who we're not really sure at first who it is. It's this mysterious woman uh-huh. who will turn out to be essentially an angel of death called Angelique in a nightclub setting, but almost like a backstage yeah, old-timey. It's like the backstage of a theater. Yeah, kind yeah. of thing. I think their location changes a couple of times. Yeah. but Played by Jessica Lange, of course. They chat about his real life and his problems. It, it's sort of like therapy or a confessional. He's a little bit more honest with her than he is the other people in his right. life. And these scenes, I think, provide a little bit of a window into who Joe Gideon and then, by extension, Bob Fosse is slash was because it's this interesting dichotomy of a massive, massive ego while at the very same time never feeling good enough constantly feeling inferior, constantly trying to live up to something. That void, trying to fill that void. Even though it's very clear that many of the people in his life, including the women of his life, are willing to put up with whatever to attach themselves to his genius. That's how much people think of him. Exactly. And he still can't grasp that he's already made it. And And he's he's killing himself to get all of this work done. I know. And completely incapable of treating the women in his life respectfully the only one that really bothers me aside from the actress who he does bully a little bit the dancer i mean i am disappointed in how he treats his daughter it's never terrible or anything like that but just you don't care about katie though well she should stand up for herself and break up with him yeah she's an adult right (laughs) (laughs) i don't think that he's abusive to her he just cheats on her and doesn't seem to take her feelings very seriously even though it's fictionalized i do think that the film ends up feeling like a warts and all autobiography, a more raw version of what we would usually think of as a pretty glitzy and glamorous world, which again, in the subsequent years, we've seen a lot more looks that are raw and real and gritty. But I think in 79, it was still a pretty new concept to people at home, what it was really like backstage and how cutthroat. The dark underbelly of what has been a glamorized world. Cliff Gorman was cast in the titular role of the stand-up, the film-within-a-film version of Lenny. After having played the role of Lenny Bruce in the original theatrical production of the show, for which he won a Tony Award, but he was passed over for Fosse's film version of the production in favor of Dustin Hoffman. Hmm. So there's an even added layer of meta where this actor had played Lenny Bruce and then Fosse didn't pick him to be in the movie version of Lenny. Wow. But now he's playing Lenny Bruce in the film within a film. (laughs) Yeah. And this monologue of the character of Lenny Bruce on stage becomes this backbone of what's going on with Fosse or Gideon during this time period. The stages of grief, anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Gideon will go through these stages himself once his health starts to take a turn, but as you're listening to this character of Lenny Bruce run through this and then applying what he's saying to the action of the film, 
it's a little heavy-handed, but I also think it makes sense and it works within the context of what Gideon is going to end up coming to grips with, even though yeah. at the start of this film he doesn't seem to know that yet. No, I know. And it, it does, but I do feel like they play it a few too many times. Well, Lenny Bruce stinks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm upsetting anyone. I don't know that he actually has like a lot of fans. He's just important in the history of free speech and comedy, even though I don't actually think he was ever really that funny. My favorite thing that goes on with the whole film, the stand-up, is just these people that are editing it. Yeah. It seems like they're never allowed to leave. <laughs> and they don't understand even what he's changing yeah. at a certain point. <laughs> Although the dad from ALF, I don't yeah. know if you noticed that guy, he seemed to like it. Yeah. He's like, it's so much better. <laughs> but regardless of what you may or may not think about Lenny Bruce, it seems as if Joe connects with the death message of the performance in the film and gets really fixated on editing this specific monologue. Gideon's rough handling of chorus girl Victoria Porter closely resembles Bob Fosse's own treatment of Jennifer Nairn Smith during rehearsals for Pippin. Nairn Smith herself appears in the film as Jennifer, one oh. of the New York LA dancers. Okay. And Ryan King was one of Fosse's sexual partners at the time and was more or less playing herself in the film. But nonetheless, she was required to audition for the role oh, of wow. Gideon's girlfriend, Kate Jagger. <laughs> Wait, that's the Victoria character? No, they're oh. two different characters. Okay. Yeah. And Ryan King plays Katie Jagger, and I don't know who plays Victoria Porter, but she's just the dancer, and it's based right. off of a dancer that he treated like that, too. Gotcha. He has sex with all of them, of well, course. Well, yeah, and the Victoria character... During the audition, he's just like, is this your home phone number? <laughs> and then she has the part. It's all very incestuous, not just the film itself, but Fosse's life. Oh, yeah. People knowing each other. It doesn't seem to matter. Everyone seems to put their own personal emotions on pause or in the background to allow the genius to continue to flourish, to allow the art to continue to be made. Everyone wants just to be part of it. That's right. But early on, Joe is busted with Victoria by Katie. He is a womanizer. He is strung out. He's way too skinny, unhealthy, living on the edge. There's this flashback. I almost was reminded of almost famous, that deflowering scene. Oh, it right. seems as if when Joe lost his virginity, it was from a much older woman that would now probably be considered statutory rape. Yeah, yeah. His younger version is played by Keith Gordon from Dress to Kill. Right. The background that Gideon is coming from seems to be some kind of a burlesque show, a little more sexual than what kids should have probably been seeing. And that's Definitely. the world he came up with. Yeah. And he's used to it. And he's still in. The nature of the relationship with Katie is hard to pin down. They seem to have rules, at least... In her mind, because Gideon is straightforward. He says, I'm allowed to have sex with whoever I want, but you cannot have sex with another man or this relationship is over. Yeah, really? <laughs> she seems to go with this. She's fine with it. She is a, a bit of a pushover. I don't know if she's fine with it, though. She's definitely hurt. Well, she is one of the great lines of the movie, though. Yeah. I just wish you weren't so generous with your cock. <laughs> It's a little bit of a delicate topic to broach, but I think it's fair to at least comment on the very rampant and real and raw heterosexuality on display and all that jazz, which is very different from what some audiences may expect oh, in the totally. Broadway world. And certainly after this film, this almost stands out as 
a unicorn uh, in yeah. a world where you wouldn't expect this much womanizing and heterosexual behavior. Well, he seems like a pretty like flamboyant guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not what you would expect. Yeah, just stand over. Jump up on my shoulder. Oh God, you're getting heavy. All right, put your leg in an arabesque. How are things at home? They're pretty good. Oh, all right. All right, watch your back now. Anything you want to tell me? Well, I promised Mom I wouldn't bring it up. But you're going to bring it up anyway. <laughs> Sit down, Michelle. You can tell me anything. You know that. Give me a wrist. Ready? Jump! Oh. It's just that I keep wondering, Dad. Bend your knees. What is it you keep wondering? Why don't you get married again? Do a head roll. I don't get married again because I can't find anyone I dislike enough to inflict that kind of torture on. Hey, why don't you marry Katie? She's terrific. Keep rolling your head. Straighten your leg. Yeah, you're right. She's terrific. That's exactly why I don't want to marry her. <coughs> All right, run off in the corner and jump and I'll catch you. <coughs> what about Victoria? You're not too crazy about her. Just run and jump. Never mind that. Come on. Hang. What about the blonde? What blonde? The one in Philadelphia with the television show. You know, the one that Mom always keeps talking about. Oh, yeah, that blonde. Mm-hmm. Jump up and wrap your legs around me. <coughs> wrap around. That's it. Okay. Why is it so important to you that I... Follow my hand. Why is it so important to you that I get married again? Because then you settle down and stop screwing around. Hey, watch your language. Oh, shit, look at the time. I gotta get oh, you Oh, Daddy, Come can't on. we stay for a little while? No, no, your mother will kill me, you know. Oh, it's so much fun, no, Daddy. No, no, absolutely. Come on, stop blocking your legs. Come on, don't kiss your home. Hey, please. No, 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 no. Besides, if you got married again, maybe you'd have a baby. Maybe I'd have a little brother. I'll call Hertz tomorrow, and I'll rent you a brother. Oh, everybody. <laughs> oh, everybody's a critic. What did you think about that scene where Gideon dances with Michelle, his daughter? It's a little weird. It's a little weird. There's a little too much gyrating going on for a father-daughter relationship. Well... More so because Scheider and this actress are not related, well, I think. Yeah. I think if they were father-daughter and he was a dance instructor, it is what it is. It's yeah. fine. But I guess it's just all the dancing is sort of sexually suggestive. Yeah, and having this little girl clinging on his body and him saying, wrap your legs around me and stuff. Yeah. It was a little weird, but there, I do it was tender, though, because yeah. there isn't a lot of connection between the two. And the fact that she has embraced this dancing and wants to do it, too, so that she can be close to her it's dad is kind of connect. sweet. Yep. But it's also kind of sad. It is. Because we know that he's not really going to be there for her. It's a whirlwind to try to make sense of. There's a lot of images cut in, a lot of jumps, a lot of different things being thrown at you. He's coughing like crazy. And then some of the visions that you're seeing seem to be premonitions. You're seeing the oxygen mask right. being put on yeah. his face cuts to the hospital There's, but it's out of context right now so you're not sure what it is i know and they're very grim the shots are pretty raw and rough yeah which is an interesting juxtaposition against what a lot of the buoyant music mm -hmm. and the dancing and that kind of stuff feels like after having sex with victoria he bullies her at a 
rehearsal session in front of everyone, which uh-huh. is kind of embarrassing. But she stays. She and rolls keeps with it. Doing it. Yeah. Women are still drawn to this man, no matter what. But at least Fosse, by including stuff like that in the film, seems to be acknowledging that this is wrong and has a certain amount of self-awareness of his own behavior. Definitely, yeah. It does feel like it's held back, though. A little bit, but sometimes when you get into this situation where an artist is willing to make themselves look bad in whatever it is, movie, TV show, book, whatever, they'll do that game where they'll push it a little bit, uh-huh. but then couch it in a way where they try to justify what they're doing. And this movie does not do that. I think this stuff is shown pretty straightforward. I do and agree. the audience yeah. knows this guy is a dickhead. There's right. no excuses for the behavior. I know. Joe exists in an oddly similar world to that of Dr. T from our previous Okay, wow. He is surrounded by women. So if you didn't listen to that episode, you better go back and listen to it now. I like the Joe and Audrey scenes. Audrey is a star. She knows who she really is and is very comfortable and self-confident. Definitely. And completely accepts who she is and accepts Joe's shortcomings. She has moved on with her life, but she shares a daughter with him. And she remains close. And in real life, Gwen Vierden and Anne Ryan King were great friends, which is bizarre. And they remained friends after Fosse's death. And together, they basically protected and maintained his legacy up until their deaths. I think they're both dead now. Mm. That's weird, too. Definitely. yeah. That's not expected. She's a little different, though, than Michelle and Katie and everyone else. Oh, for sure. Victoria and everyone else. Audrey, there's a little bit more experience history knowledge there's a comfort like she's very comfortable in her own skin which like a lot of these other female characters are not and she would not waste the energy getting mad or worried or upset or whatever yeah over him until the end obviously but i'm saying just day-to-day his day-to-day behavior obviously she cares about him and that's going to come up at the end of the film but she understands who he is and does not expect him to change As Joe continues to be dissatisfied with his editing job, repeatedly making minor changes to a single monologue, he takes his frustration out on the dancers and in his choreography, putting on a highly sexualized number with topless women during one rehearsal, frustrating both Audrey and the show's penny-pinching backers. I was wondering, is this what these dancers thought they had signed up for? I think most Broadway dancers are okay with... Comfortable with nudity? If it's a real person... Yeah, like Bob Fosse, and it's not some fucking scam right. to see titties or something. Yeah, I think in that artistic world, mm-hmm. many would be comfortable, not across the board, but I don't know if he's doing this on purpose, if this is an intentional thing, or if he actually thinks this is going to be part of the play, because... It is weird. Clearly, Audrey doesn't think that. She's like, what the fuck is going on? There's a part of the film that makes you think that maybe he is cracking, you know? And he's not quite sure if this is actually genius or if it's a mess. Well, that's the self-doubt creeping in. The cool thing about all that jazz is it's a musical without the songs feeling forced or fake or out of reality because you're able to do the performances as rehearsals, as auditions, things of that nature. And it's not people living their ordinary lives and then a erupting into song yeah, yeah. out of the blue. And yet it still is kind of a musical with big lavish numbers and dancing. Right. And 
all of these different things. And then at the end, there's a little bit of a, a hallucination fantasy type sequence. That ends but, up being like the longest performance. Right. But most of the stuff up until then yeah. is either in his mind or it's based in some kind of reality. Although this other number where they're, you know, whatever, the first class, whatever this thing is that is about a flight and then turns into this sexual thing. Yeah. That's also like pretty long. Oh, yeah, for sure. This movie is a, a hair over two hours, but a big chunk of it is some of these long, drawn-out performances. Right. The only moment of joy for Joe during this stressful period in his life occurs when Katie and Michelle perform a Fosse-style number for him as an homage to the upcoming release of the stand-up, and it's a gesture that genuinely moves him to tears. Totally. And it's very cute, too. It and I, is. I like the relationship between it, that, Michelle and Katie. Again, it's another one of these tender moments. Well, I think a lot of the other people in Gideon's life are recognizing that he's not being a great father. And it probably, on some instinctual level, is kicking in even with his girlfriend, who is not her mother. I know. She's like, all right, well, we got <laughs> we to try to bond here. Be her friend, yeah. be her parent. She's overcompensating. Be her protector. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's fun that they do that it for is, him, and yeah. they, he seems to genuinely like it. Oh shit! Hello, Stacy. Oh, listen, I'm sorry. I- I'm in a meeting. Just don't, don't panic on the staircase. <clears throat> At least three people said how much they like the screaming. Yay! What was my producer? What was my lawyer? One was Michelle's mother. Oh, Joel, everybody loved it. We tried to tell you that last night. You just wouldn't listen to that. You know, that was the first R-rated movie I ever saw, and I loved it. Did you understand it? Well, I understood everything. Except the part where the two girls were in bed together, and they were kissing. What was that supposed to mean? Is dinner ready yet? No. What was that supposed to mean? Well, Michelle, uh, there are certain women who... Who? Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. There are certain women who just don't relate to men, so they... I think lesbian scenes are a big turn-off. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, I should have cut it. What's going on here? Never mind, you'll find out. Shouldn't I be doing something? Just sit there and turn off the lights on the Yes, ma'am. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Where'd you get those hats? We're not telling them. That's for us to know and for you to find out. Goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> oh, oh, the light, 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 light. Joe, could you turn off the lights, please? Uh, now turn on those whatchamacallit lights. Yes, ma'am.
However, these moments of happiness are few and far between. As the movie goes along, his cough keeps getting worse and worse. His appearance keeps getting worse and worse. He seems skinnier. His skin looks bad. The color is weird. His declaration of it's showtime, folks, seems to get weaker. It's running out of energy. Yeah. Every time. It's a cyclical thing going through the motions. Yeah. And at a certain point, you realize that it's solely a grind and there doesn't seem to be any satisfaction in his work or in his life and then that's the point where yeah. you truly have to question yourself how it could this possibly be worth it he's definitely going through the motions he seems to have lost the ability to experience joy other than when he's right really in his element instructing the dancers i feel like he's getting the most return from life in those scenes one of the things that some people who didn't enjoy the film or even if they did one thing that people pointed out was that they would have liked a little bit more about the motivation which i think addresses what i just said how could this possibly be worth it yeah if you provided a little bit more about why he's doing this and where this is coming from i think there's a little tip of the iceberg with some of those burlesque flashbacks and stuff but i disagree with it because i think the movie is awesome and not every movie needs to cover every base and be every single thing to everyone so i enjoy it i love it but i can see the perspective of well this guy is just a fucking asshole why am i watching this i need to see more about why is he doing this i need justification for this behavior i get that too but i just think that this just rings so true it definitely does but i think if you're going to take a self-awareness approach to fully paint the picture you're going to have to dig a little deeper yeah where did this come from how did it start because at some point there's a starting point that pushes you on this reckless path of self-destruction but also creation it's self-destruction but your creation is outward Mm -hmm. (laughs) angelique who we see frequently it's kind of hard to talk about this movie because it jumps from all these different things and then the angelique scenes some might last 20 seconds and then some might last eight minutes. Yep. And then there's six of them spread out over an hour and you're kind of like, I don't know how to keep. But basically Angelique was largely based on Fosse's late wife, Joan McCracken, who passed away on November 1st, 1961. Oh, wow. And was older than him and greatly influenced him in his early career. He actually was married before that too. Yeah. I guess didn't feel influenced by that wife. <laughs> but these scenes are sort of a spiritual cleansing and otherworldly therapist who never seems to judge too harshly even though she does point out yeah she's got a look in her eye like (laughs) she's kind of like yeah okay well what about this but she doesn't say you're a bad person right or you deserve this or you just she's able to coax it out of him without being too tough it does seem like a patient therapist relationship she's definitely pointing things out and she learns that he is a man with an obsession with women with sex with physicality, Mm -hmm. and he's surrounded by women, but unable to quiet his own passions and obsessions enough to truly connect with them, to truly understand them. His relationship with his daughter, Michelle, is a metaphor for all of his relationships. She is present. She is there. She is willing and obviously eager to connect with him. Not counting his daughter and ex-wife, I sort of take it as 
he puts so much of himself into his work and that's so all consuming that the sexual stuff with all these other women is is really acting out it's not ever going to be this intimate personal thing it's just part of well i think that it's also a mechanism to prevent him from getting close to Katie, and it yeah. probably kept him from getting close to his previous wives, who he also cheated on. Right. I just think he treats it, though, like another... It's like smoking a cigarette. Well, yeah, that's how yeah. he probably views it, but the motivation probably comes from a psychological need to yeah. put up walls. Right. He's afraid of being rejected, which is what it, most things come down to, really. Even though he's the genius, and these women are so willing to put up with him, and his own daughter doesn't judge him that harshly and she's there and he just won't do it and i think that that represents how he is with everyone yeah he's there she's there but there's a lack of a true human connection between them and i think that's the frustration that's leading him to be how he is oh agreed he doesn't understand why there isn't that true happiness that true connection the true fulfillment that would come with all of this success but when joe disappoints his daughter he pushes too hard in the wrong direction, the opposite direction. All she really wants and needs is for her dad to just be there. And he thinks the answer is, I have to be a bigger success. I have to be better. The dancing has to be better. Beyond Michelle. Yeah. This applies to all humans. Yeah, it's... He thinks, I have to keep getting better. And she just wants him to be a dad. It's a way to distract himself from facing these real things. Right. And Katie just wants him to be a boyfriend. And... Audrey just wanted him to be a husband and his dancers just want him to be a teacher and a leader and a director. Those things seem too normal to him. He needs to be better than that. He needs to be this genius who has cracked the code and, and his is work being is worshipped. Always revered. Yeah. On Even, a level that's unrealistic. Yeah. Which he can't meet because when we finally do get this stand up movie out, it's not exactly universally beloved. I think it's a little bit of the cult of personality yeah. where people are excited by your excitement, your passion, and they fall in line. And that's why people who seem like assholes to most people who don't care, because I would never care. I don't give a shit how great yeah. of a choreographer is. I, would, I don't want to be a dancer, so I wouldn't put up with anything. That would be quite a sight, though. But he is able to find enough people in the public and in his own co-workers that want to go along with this (laughs) during a particularly stressful table read of nyla joe experiences chest pains and numbness in his arm he is admitted to the hospital with severe angina and i guess this will serve as a little bit of a wake-up call for him and he'll completely change his life after (laughs) this. yeah everything's gonna be fine (laughs) exercise no drugs eight hours of sleep i do understand this a little bit though i wish i i didn't but every time i've had sort of a eye-opening moment i do kind of go back to living hard i think most people do yeah all i want to do now is to read uh, easily easily through the script and uh frankly i'm not too familiar with it myself (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) so if we go through it then you'll give paul and me some rough idea of what we've got Uh, okay no uh no acting everyone just take it easy easy All right, lights up. Uh, Audrey, you have your first number, and then uh, you begin reading on page page two. You see, Sammy, in California, everybody needs a car. I got a friend who bought a Mercedes just to get to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) 
I guess only in America can a 24-year-old girl like me own a house like this in Beverly Hills. Thank you all very much. You've done a wonderful job. <laughs> Take an hour and a half for lunch, back at 3 o'clock. Don't forget to sign the Boston Hotel list. The thing that jumps out to me about this is that it's shocking that once joe enters the hospital that's it really the movie is different now it enters the second phase and there's never any no i know like you keep expecting oh well new york la is going to open at some point we're going to see what this performance right. is yeah, and we're I know. See no and that's kind of how it is i think sometimes too with these people he doesn't realize yet that it's over because why would he and he does the stupidest thing ever which is he just ignores the doctors totally. and continues to live a million miles an hour uh-huh I like the audio choices in the build-up to the heart attack situation, how everything goes silent in the room during the reading except his noises when he moves paper, when he touches the desk. His audio is amplified while oh, everyone yeah. else's audio is gone. Right. It's kind of this haunting, I'm only in my world kind of a thing where yeah. I know something's wrong. And it kind of captures that feeling where you're like panicking, but you're you're just like, I don't know what's, what's happening, what's happening. You know, when you're driving over to my house and do, to do the podcast uh, uh, yeah. and you have to go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of sad, too, that Joe, his constant lack of satisfaction is in stark contrast to what we're actually seeing. When they do the table read, everybody fucking loves it. People oh, are right. dying laughing. He's not happy. You can tell he doesn't <laughs> like it at all. Yeah. When the dance performances in a rehearsal or something gets applause, you can tell he didn't really like it. When anything happens, it's not good enough. Well, yeah, I, I think it's one of these things that when you're this type, it's almost like you have a negative reaction to praise. And then once the hospital thing happens, I wondered if the bluster and the partying and the carrying on and the attitude... I know that it's fake, and the doctor says that in the uh-huh. film, basically. I actually think this guy really wants to live. Yeah. But even beyond that, if underneath all of this, there's this inevitability feeling like he feels resigned to this fate and has just accepted it already. And he's pushing himself into it. Kind of. A little bit. Yeah. He's not taking it easy. In defiance of it specifically, like, fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway, but even harder. Of course, Joe simply brushes off his symptoms, attempting to leave the hospital in order to return to rehearsal but he collapses in the doctor's office and is ordered to stay in the hospital for several weeks to rest his heart and recover from exhaustion. NYLA is postponed for four months, upsetting the dancers and making everybody nervous. Audrey tries to put on a brave face for the others. The producers begin speaking with Joe's rival, Lucas Sargent, played by John Lithgow, potentially as a replacement. But while an uneasy feeling of uncertainty hangs over the production, Joe, for his part, doesn't slow down one bit. He continues his antics from the hospital bed, continuing to smoke and drink while having an endless string of women and partiers roll through his room. Managing to get massages from the nurses at this hospital. He's got that charisma. They love him. Not surprisingly, his health does not really improve. In fact, it keeps deteriorating. Both Audrey and Katie remain by his side for support. Though there is significant monetary success, plus plenty of positive reviews, one negative televised review of the stand-up, which has been released while Joe has been in the hospital, sends Joe into an immediate tailspin, and he experiences a massive coronary event. 
it's the never being able to react to good news and positive feedback and only being focused on the negative, which it goes back to when people are applauding the work, he is non-reactive to it. When someone's handing him all of these positive reviews from the newspaper, he immediately just asks where the bad ones are. Yeah, yeah. Which is not unusual. I think yeah. there are definitely other performers who are like that too. Some don't read reviews at all. Uh-huh. Whatever. I think it's probably a mistake to get in your head about it because you just have to do what you do and hope people like it. I don't think trying to change for critics is ever going to be a positive thing. It's a confrontation with his own mortality and he doesn't quite seem to rise to the occasion, but even though Fosse is seemingly admitting that of himself, that he's not going to be able to rise to this occasion to be a better man, to fix his life, he's concocted this surreal blur of reality and fantasy between the stage and the hospital bed. You're never really sure where you are or what's going on. Songs, performances. At one point, it seems as if Gideon is directing a movie in his hallucinations uh-huh. that he is in and not in and <laughs> yeah. in a hospital bed, but also the director. It's hard to decipher his true feelings for people too. What did you think about when he finds out that Katie's been unfaithful while he was in the hospital? Do you take that as just sort of petty jealousy or do you think he really loves her? What is the deal with this? I think it's a hit to his ego more than anything. Yeah, I think that's the reality of it. I think Katie would like it to be that it's because he really loves her, but I think the reality is... It's You've just, done something to me. Yeah. You've made me look bad. Right. Yeah. Although, I can't really speculate to the real man, Bob Fosse, sure, what sure. he felt about Anne Ryan King or any right. of the other We're women in his life. We're just talking the Joe Gideon character. Yeah, you can really just go by what you see. I keep wanting to think that there's more there, and maybe he is not as bad as it seems, and maybe he does have real feelings for... Katie and he does love his daughter and and I guess you could point to the scene with her and his daughter dancing and him getting emotional that there is a connection there obviously that scene is heavy about his daughter but there's probably some things for Katie I mean just the fact that Katie is making this effort to have this relationship with his daughter that has to have some sort of impact on him I think sometimes when you are analyzing a film and then trying to bring in how real emotion works it's never a a one-to-one right. translation or comparison. Because I think real human emotion is much more complicated For and sure. weird. and Layered. He may have loved Katie in the way that he loved people, but that doesn't mean that there weren't still a lot of shortcomings and flaws in that love and that he should have done more and done better. But that doesn't mean that to him that the feelings aren't real. But I don't know. Because, yeah, you're right. When he does show that emotion, it could be mostly about the daughter. So I don't know. Angelique, always lingering, a constant presence. She provides instant feedback, analysis, and discussion because he's more honest with this pretend person than he is with anyone else. So when she says things to him, it feels real in a way that the other characters can't match because they they never know his real thoughts. It's the only scenarios where he's really forced to be honest about his problems as joe undergoes coronary artery bypass surgery the producers of nyla realize that the best way to recoup their money and make a profit is to bet on joe dying (laughs) the insurance proceeds would result in a profit of over half a million dollars loved seeing wallace sean in this scene (laughs) so random inconceivable (laughs) 
Yeah, it is hilarious. As Lindsay would say, capitalism, baby. Just these gross <laughs> executives who, well, how do we figure out how we wet our beaks the, the best out of this situation? Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. It's not really that dissimilar from dumb money or some of the shit going on now. No, I know. There's always going to be people that are going to screw you over, and the regular people like us are never going to win. Not that regular people were necessarily being screwed over by an insurance scam over a Broadway show. Not that it's even really a scam, but you know what I mean. Right, right. There's always going to be insurance people, executive people, producer people. The money people are always going to figure out how to cash in ways yeah, to get the money back. That's right. The end of the film, there's two things that happen. There's the first hospital hallucination where he sees his daughter... And she, I believe, is the one holding the clapboard that says hospital hallucination take one. Oh, yeah. And he's kind of the, the director on it, too. Uh-huh. This is where, as an audience member, you may be interested in to what exactly the Veard and Ryan King relationship was. Because now he's having this fantasy that primarily involves his daughter, his ex-wife, and his current lover, the three main women of his world. And Audrey and Katie are dancing side by side as if together unified in his mind as one force of good i don't know what to really say about it he's taking this meta stuff from his real life and mixing it into this pretend movie in a hallucination and there's these big production numbers going on as director he talks to himself unconscious in bed yeah i guess as all this stuff is happening the pace is picking up and the dips into the surreal become more and more yeah, because I don't even know that Gideon is conscience all the time now. Right. It yeah. seems like he's he's having surgery, then he's sedated, and all these different things are happening. So in his mind, Joe is directing this lavish, extravagant musical dream sequence starring his daughter, his ex-wife, and girlfriend, all berating him for his behavior and life choices as in real life, and then he goes on life support in the real world. Oh, yeah. There's all this bullshit about death with dignity. You know what death with dignity is, man? You don't drool. <laughs> Change your FaceTime request. Here we go. Vico Dante. Hey! Death is in, death is in, my dear. Death is a thing. No, death that's in, very theatrical, too. Please don't try to talk. <laughs> you want to shoot it now? Huh? I can't understand him. I think he said okay. Hospital hallucination, take one. There's a lady in Chicago, man, wrote a book. Dr. Kubler-Ross with a dash. This chick, man, without the benefit of dying herself. All right, here we go. On your mark Has broken the process of death into five stages. Ready? Anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Playback. After you've gone and left me crying, after you've gone, there's no denying you'll feel blue, you'll feel sad, you'll miss the bestest pal you ever had. There'll come a time, don't forget it, there'll come a time when you'll Grow lonely, your heart will break like mine and yours. 
Jesus, Joe, you're way behind schedule. You gotta print it. Next setup. Katie, take two. Listen, huh? Playback. When we say that Fosse was admitting his own faults, there is a lot of pain, too, especially when we get to the end of this and we reveal, not that you couldn't know this already, but what happened to Bob Fosse. This is basically a, a prediction that came true for his life. Yeah. And there is real uncomfortable pain. Granted, his daughter, by the time he actually did die, wasn't quite this young, but it's still pretty rough. Sure. And to hear her saying these things, she's basically in song begging him not to die. Right. Which is kind of sad. But Definitely. It's done in a way where you're not even sure if these emotions are registering because you're I like know. they're singing and they're upbeat and happy, but the <laughs> yeah. words are "Don't die, please right. don't die," or yeah. "Why'd you have to do this? Why'd you have to drink and smoke and kill yourself?" After all of this, though, there is a brief moment of false hope, a window of time where it seems like maybe, maybe Joe is going to pull through and come out on the other side, but it doesn't last. While recovering from surgery, Joe has yet another heart attack. As the doctors try and save him, Joe runs away from his hospital bed behind their backs and starts exploring the basement of the hospital as well as the autopsy ward before he allows himself to be taken back. Did you think that this was real or a hallucination? Him going into the basement, the big power generators in a massive hospital. It's definitely played like it's real, but I think it's hard to trust anything that you're seeing at this point. Yeah, and I don't even know that you're supposed to really care or know yeah. anymore. It doesn't matter. This is just a representation of the end of his life and uh-huh. what he thinks that it's going to be. CCH Pounder making an appearance as yeah. the nurse. Spunky, too. Yeah, is it Audrey that like slaps her or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> they're like getting into it once fucking Gideon disappears. And they're like, where the fuck is he? Why well, can this you is let this happen? He's calling her in because he's like, something's wrong. Or she had just given him his medicine or something. This is where he's really having a reaction. Though. Oh, the, yeah, the, yeah. The slap happens when he has that third, fourth, fifth heart attack, yeah. whichever one that is. Right. Yeah, the most recent one we've talked about. He's a mess. Yeah, he cuts his forehead as he's wandering around. He's bleeding. He kisses this old woman in a hospital bed. He's singing. He doesn't even know what the fuck is going on. I know. He's delirious. He's making friends with the janitorial staff, <laughs> and they have to tie him down. To the bed. Yep. Because now he's moving. Yeah. He's a wanderer. He's losing it. Joe then goes through the five stages of grief, anger, denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, all heavily featured in that long stand-up monologue from his film that he had been obsessing over editing. As Joe inches closer to death, his dream sequences become more and more hallucinatory. As doctors try once again to save his life, Joe imagines a monumental variety show featuring everyone from his past where he takes center stage in an extensive musical number that really just goes on and on. This is the final 15 or so minutes, maybe even more than that, of the film. I keep thinking it's going to be like five minutes, and it just keeps going. (laughs) Yeah. The song is catchy, don't get me wrong. The finale number, Bye Bye Life, is a cover of the Everly Brothers' hit, Bye Bye Love, and they have substituted the word life for love. The rest of the lyrics remain the same. Scheider once commented that he had sung, he had danced on stage, and he had acted before, but until all that jazz had never done all three in the same production, he stated that keeping up with the trained dancers in the movie's final number was the hardest thing 
he physically ever had to do in a movie. I'm endlessly impressed by people that can dance. I'm endlessly impressed by people who can sing. Well, both, yeah. <laughs> the variety show is one that is ripped straight out of Joe's actual life. It's one that he and Katie have watched on TV while he's been in the hospital. It's hosted right. by the actor, dancer, singer Ben Vereen. Uh-huh. And then as part of his hallucination, he's on the show with Ben Vereen, and then they do this big number that goes on and on and on. Yep. Folks, what can I tell you about my next guest? This cat allowed himself to be adored, but not loved. And his success in show business was matched by failure in his personal relationship bag. Now, that's where he really bombed. And he came to believe that work, show business, love, his whole life, even himself, and all that jazz was bullshit. He became numero uno game player, uh, to the point where he didn't know where the games ended and the reality began. Like this cat, the only reality is death, man. Ladies and gentlemen, let me lay on you a so-so entertainer, not much of a humanitarian, and this cat was never nobody's friend. In his final appearance on the great stage of life, uh, you can applaud if you wanna, Mr. Joe Gideon. Die. I think he's gonna die. I think he's gonna die. I think I'm gonna die. 
is blue. I sure am blue. He sure is blue. I sure am blue. He sure is blue. I sure am blue. He sure is blue. I sure am blue. And here's the reason that he's so free. Here's a loving baby. She's through with me.
In his dying dream, Joe is able to thank his family and acquaintances as he cannot do so from his hospital bed in real life. And his performance receives a massive standing ovation. Joe then finally dreams of himself traveling down a hallway to meet Angelique at the end as the film abruptly cuts to his corpse being zipped up in a body bag. Yeah, it's cold. It's a unique opportunity to construct his own farewell. All that jazz is a self-indictment, a man realizing that one day his lifestyle will run him down, a tale as old as time in the showbiz industry. Yeah, and beyond, I would say, when I think about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this weekend. Yeah. It's self-indulgent, it's self-aggrandizing, but it's also a triumph. It's unlike anything in many ways. Unflinching, cold, him all of a sudden... At the conclusion of this big showy number, it's very reminiscent of Omar and the Wire, where you're just like, what the fuck is any of this for? Yeah. The song, There's No Business Like Show Business, starts playing too, and it's so jaded and so cold, so pessimistic, that you can't help but almost laugh at how absurdly jarring that feels to just go from that boisterous big booming number where to the stark reality for audiences maybe more used to standard linear non-hallucinary non-fantasy type stories they probably weren't even sure where this was going they're like wait a minute is he gonna die is he gonna come through on the other side is he gonna change no wait oh fuck (laughs) the end (laughs) as i said i would have liked a little bit more motivation but the movie's long enough and not every yeah. single aspect of the story needs to be conveyed to me. I just think that maybe if you trim here and there and then add in a few minutes of flashback or something to yeah. kind of maybe a little bit more with the guy from Dress to Kill 
in that era, growing up in the world of show right. business and, and why he has this desire to push himself like this. I just feel like, though, you understand this guy, you know? Yeah, I definitely do. I can't help but think if you and I were around and going to movies in 79, this is a movie that we would enjoy and get a lot of discussion out of just because it had to be such a weird theatrical experience. Yeah, there was definitely a lot more innovation going on. You don't really see the same kind of raw, gritty musicals now. Yeah. You'll see maybe one or two per year, but they're much more Disneyfied, I think, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And this is a genre that doesn't really feel relatable to 2023 at all. Is there a movie like all that jazz at all now? The Star is Born. Eh. Eh. I still don't think that's really the same. No, thing. I know. There's I, I way agree. more yeah. fantastical elements in this and yeah, surreal. Exactly. Yeah, no, I know. There's not, there's not much like this. It's a unique movie. It's an intense labor of love. The production took 101 days and post-production lasted eight months. But I do think the movie is really well edited. It's got a lot of cool shit spliced in there. And the montages all kind of work. Everything works really well. It's a, It's got great forward momentum. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. The vibe and the, and the feeling of the movie kicks off from the first second. And you feel exhausted. Yeah, it bounces around to all of these things, but you know what's happening. Uh-huh. To me, it seems very clear. And almost within the first 15 minutes, yeah. you get what this is. Well, that's the thing. You're getting this guy's perspective of his life as he heads to the end of it. And you feel all the feelings that he's experiencing. So when it's surreal, it's surreal for him. When it's reflective, you're feeling that. When it's tiring, you're feeling that. Portions of the movie, as well as auditions and on-set moments, were recreated for the biographical FX limited series Fosse Virden from 2019 with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who also produced the series as Roy Scheider. Oh. Sam Rockwell as Bob Fosse, and Margaret Qualley as Anne Reinking. That's cool. I bet uh, Lindsay would be interested in checking that out. I believe Michelle Williams plays Virden, right? I didn't even know this existed, so... Oh, yeah, that's when she won that award, and then Busy Phillips was crying. Oh, she... yeah, okay, right. Yeah, it was a big thing on FX. I just never have been a big FX guy. I've missed a lot of their series Same. and limited series yeah, and I stuff. Know. Same here. Well, what do you think happened to Bob Fosse, folks? <laughs> I'm assuming he died of um, heart-related complications. He died at the grand old age of 112. No, (laughs) not quite. Bob Fosse continued to chain smoke unfiltered cigarettes while promoting the movie to the incredulity of interviewers who asked how he could do so after suffering two heart attacks and making a movie featuring the destructive effects of drugs and chain smoking on his alter ego's health. Take that, life. Fosse joked that he cut back to five packs a day. Whoa. He died eight years after the release of All That Jazz in 1987 at the age of 60. He directed one more film called Star 80, which was released in 1983, and we'll talk about that more momentarily. It's oh, a little tease for you. Yeah, so this is an interesting episode for the archives because we're recording it out here in the country. <laughs> we're a little bit more a suburban podcast most of the time. We're having a... <laughs> suburban, but pretty city. You're more yeah. urban now. I we used to we started urban. Yeah. And then I moved to the suburbs. You're retiring. <laughs> but yeah, we're out on a, a dude's weekend 
Dr. Steven, I hope we did it justice. This is an interesting movie to try to cover because of the long musical sequences. That and probably the plot takes is up yeah, jumping. 30 minutes of the runtime is performances, at least. At least, right? yeah. But it is a cool movie. It was one of the earlier Criterions actually bought. It was a blind buy. I don't know. I've probably seen it five or six times now. It's one that Lindsay and I will watch every year or two years. So yeah. to see it pop up as a listener request, that, that was nice to see. Yeah, I don't know how this film's legacy is now. Because I think among cinephiles, there's no question, obviously. People know it's in the Criterion Collection. But yeah. Fosse, his style and his work is so specific that when times change, styles change, preferences change, it is possible that what he did has fallen a little out of favor stylistically, and it's not really a movie you see on cable or oh, anywhere. I wouldn't think, yeah. I think it probably is confusing to a lot of viewers. Yeah. It's way more artsy than I think you would initially think, because yeah. the title is probably bigger because of the songs right. all that, you know, and just it being an expression and, and all that like, stuff. Even just, like I said, the logo from that, I feel like you would be not surprised if this was like Chicago. If yeah, you put yeah. It on, like if you just looked at the... It's a way more meta right. documentary style movie of um, a production rather than a production of anything. I could say that this was a movie that was not on my radar at all, had never heard of until I just saw... Once I started getting into collecting criterions and just saw that this was one of them. Yeah, well, that's the benefit of physical media. Sometimes blind buys can lead you into some of your new favorites, Absolutely. which was a huge I, thing for me when I was collecting vinyl. Definitely. A lot of the bands yeah. that became my favorite bands were just, I got into it while I was collecting vinyl for years and years. But, but for every all that jazz, I definitely have a lot of blind buys that go horribly wrong. <laughs> that's part of the risk yeah. with a blind buy. <laughs> They're not all winners. Yeah, Folks... I think that'll do it for all that jazz. We have a couple of segments to get to. We're going to try to keep this somewhat normal. We'll do another semi-shorter episode, I think, for Thanksgiving. I don't want these to be too nuts just because it's a lot of uh, notes and research and editing going on And especially after we went wild with the Saved by the Bell, give us a second. Yeah. I think we had had to pull back a bit. I know. We still introduce those as mini-sodes, but... (laughs) I don't even really think of them as mini anymore. I okay, think of them yeah. just as what doesn't fit into the other episode. Should we stop having me say that? No. Is it deceiving? No. Who okay. cares? <laughs> what are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. First up is Recommendations. Let's do the movie we just saw today first. So we drove over to Clarion, mm-hmm. a wild movie theater that was yeah half underground. Uh huh. Which I had been to before. Even. Of a shitty mall. Yeah. It wasn't even a mall. It, it was like a, a yeah plaza that was indoors. But a shitty it does plaza. say mall on. Oh yeah, they call yeah. themselves right. a mall, but that is not a mall. No. <laughs> it was. But a, there's a little AMC. We we drove about 20 minutes from where we are to go see this. The brand new film from Eli Roth. Friend of the show. Long time yeah. friend of the show. Absolutely. Thanksgiving, which is appropriate for now. I figured we'd just talk about it now since it's out rather than save it for our Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, yeah. This movie surprisingly got good reviews, which I did not expect from an Eli Roth movie. Especially that one that I knew would be 
violent and is born from one of the fake movie trailers between the two films by Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez that make up Grindhouse. Uh huh. One of which has already been made into a film, Machete, right. and a sequel, Machete Kills. Yeah. I think there were four total. Right. So this is the second one that's actually been turned into a movie. Eli Roth did a fun little trailer in Grindhouse called Thanksgiving. It's kind of a play on Halloween. It's a slasher movie in Plymouth, Massachusetts, right. Pilgrims and shit. Although in modern times, but yeah, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. I will say of all the Grindhouse universe, this one felt the least Grindhouse. The violence, well, absolutely. I think you mean comedic. Yeah. I think when you say Grindhouse, you mean that it's like kind of funny too, right? Yeah, because well, I think I it, mean, the violence is straight up. Gr- that's Grindhouse well, yeah, violence. Definitely. It was absurd. But those movies all had like a certain grainy Wink? look and everything. Oh, that they oh were trying yeah. To this like, one was definitely a little more modern looking. Yeah, I, it almost seemed more similar to the most recent Scream movie to me, except yeah. with... The violence being comedic. The violence is turned up to an... It's yeah. so grotesque that you have to laugh, even though it but is kind of gross. If it wasn't for some of the comedic, silly violence, it feels more like a straight horror movie. Yeah. I'd say that the the more over-the-top elements are slightly more toned down, and it, it yeah. is more of a straightforward slasher just with crazy violence. But I'll say this. Well executed. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty funny and entertaining. I laughed a lot. I, fe- yeah, I yeah. felt like the only person laughing in the theater. but No, I was laughing. It was a joyful experience if you can deal with that kind of blood and guts and violence. Because it is yeah. over the top. I think it would be very disturbing for young people or people who don't I, like violence at all. To me, the violence didn't seem real at all. No, not really. Like but. In a way, like, there were times where I watched Game of Thrones and I was like, this is... Gross. The things that <laughs> like, bothered me the most in this were the things that were not necessarily crazy or fatal, but they show ankles being broken, wrists the, being that broken. arm part, yeah. Yeah, that kind rough, of shit yeah. was more upsetting in a way. Some of the underlying themes of the movie also speak to me. This whole, like, how crazy people are on Black Friday. Well. Like, that stuff, What? I don't oh. feel like that's true at all anymore. Me and Bell were whispering, like, this is not happening anymore. They oh, don't well, that's do that anymore. true, but yeah. It felt like they should have set this, like, 10 or 15 years ago when that was still, like, a major thing. I now agree. everybody shops online. No, I know. The consumerism part of it, it's. St- I mean, it still rings true for the I, Christmas look, season. Look, I actually do think there is a subset of people that are still part of that world. Yeah, but the crowd, that crowd is so big. That's there true, really yeah. aren't crowds like that right. that are pushing in anymore. Because yeah, yeah. You can get the same shit online for the most part. But he seemed like he really wanted to include the internet, TikTok culture as part of it, too. Like, he wanted to combine those two things. Well, yeah, so the having, content and yeah, the social media having stuff. Having those two time periods meet is not really reality, but that was the world that we're in in this movie. Yeah, and it stars Patrick Dempsey, who's really, like, the only person in it throughout that you would know. Gina Gershon's in it a little bit. Yep. Also a friend of the show. Absolutely. <laughs> Although that's more private. Yeah. And, friend in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, friend in real life. And everyone else was a complete unknown, but that didn't really matter to me because this is a crazy slasher no, I, movie. I mean, yeah, I, I thought the cast was good, though. I really enjoyed the movie. I, I thought yeah. it was just, it, it was a good time. and It's not know, for everybody, for sure. Oh, but absolutely. yeah, it was a lot of fun yeah. and gross. And I was a little bit nervous because even though we love Knock Knock and... I kind of like the Green Inferno, even though it's 
kind of unwatchable but also fun. I don't. It's weird. Everything after that, I haven't really been a part of. I didn't care. Or he's a weird. I don't want to see his Death Wish remake. Yeah. I don't want to see the house with clocks in its walls or whatever the fuck that was. <laughs> But this seemed interesting, and I'm glad yeah. that he made a real hardcore R-rated return to real adult horror. Right. Because the house with the clock in its walls kind of felt... That's like a kid's movie, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a little yeah. sellout-ish to me, but whatever. Yeah, he's sort of a weird director to get a gauge on now. So check that out in the theater if you're into horror and gnarly slashers. Let's save Fincher's new film, The Killer, for Thanksgiving's episode, as well as the brand new Scott Pilgrim cartoon on Netflix, which we have started, but we'll talk about that more right. next time. Instead, I'll do a second recommendation in line with Bob Fosse from 1983, Star 80, starring Mariel Hemingway in an incredible performance. But even better than her performance is Eric Roberts. Yeah, ER. This horrific psychotic it's based on a true story which is what is really horrifying it's the story of dorothy stratton a playboy playmate who rose to prominence in the 70s i believe and then had an obsessive man in her life who i think was a little older was her boyfriend slash manager kind of but clearly she was moving on to bigger and better things she was about to be a big star kind of maybe a pamela anderson type star i don't know but she was famous. She was becoming somebody. He couldn't handle it as she started to bloom in the world. New men, new opportunities. He freaks out. He eventually murders her. It's yeah. grim. It's way more grim than all that right. jazz, really. I gotta tell it's you, a depressing movie, but it's really good, and Eric Roberts is sensational in it. I know what it's about. I haven't finished it. I've tried to watch it twice, and this is no detriment to the movie. It's just one of those things. Sometimes I put movies on, and I don't finish them. Yeah, This is just one of those ones that that's happened. I will at some point. I think maybe it's not streaming anymore, though. That's the thing. I recommended it. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. So I would say it's good enough to do a streaming rental if it's available. But if not, it should pop up again. It's been on Max before in other places. It's a very underseen movie. There's no Blu-ray for it. It's only available on DVD right now. Hopefully some label puts it out eventually because I think it's... It's one that people are discovering. Tarantino and Roger Avery talked about it on their podcast. Oh, yeah. I've heard other podcasts talk about it because I think people find it and they're like, what the fuck? This was like way more brutal and upsetting than they thought it would be. You're like, this is really depressing, <laughs> but good. Definitely good, though. Which brings us to our final segment, email. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. Everyone waiting with bated breath to hear from Big Al. What the fuck is going on with Dr. T and the women? (laughs) Including yours truly here. So I actually have two emails from Big Al. And it seems like he was reasonably happy with what we did with Dr. T. But the first one he sent before we posted the episode, so he didn't actually know that we had already done it. So he was answering my initial email of asking for more Uh information. And then we'll get to his response later. Big Al says, Hi, Zach. Great to hear from you. My apologies for my delayed response. I got rear-ended at a stoplight at 38th and Sheridan in Denver, and so I had to be putting up with all of the usual annoyances that go with being an offender bender. That's awful. 
So yes, either Big Al or Big Al slash his last name, I'm not going to say that, would be good for my credit. As far as my thoughts and feelings about Dr. T and the women, I think I just keep coming back to a maddening point about the movie up until the point the wedding begins. This is fairly standard realistic drama. However, once the wedding starts, things begin to drift further and further away from reality until they reach a crescendo of exceedingly non-realistic action in the climax and denouement. I am just really flummoxed by what happens. And since I have never seen it in any other reviews, so I wonder if I'm the only person who feels like that about this movie. Well, no. Everyone felt like that and hated it. (laughs) Also, and again, I am really curious if this is just a me thing or if this strikes other people as weird, but also there are several things that leave me going, hmm, about this movie, such as, in a movie rife with powerhouse actresses did none of them stop to inform the costume designer that women don't dress up like that to go to the gynecologist well everything about the gynecologist scenes are fake really is there a single stable female character in this movie i think helen hunt's character is supposed to be but there's something going on there too yes how is Liv tyler the only patient dr t apparently has under the age of menopause some of those ladies were in their 30s and 40s i think I think their their makeup and style makes them seem a little bit older. I don't know that everyone in there was menopause age. Yeah, yeah. Is there a more awkward scene in cinema than when Liv Tyler's character goes to Dr. T for her yeast infection? I'm sure I can think of some. Yeah, there are, but it is weird right. and horrible. Does Dr. T drive past every landmark in Dallas in the climatic scene? Well, they wanted you to know where he was. Totally, yeah. Does Dr. T die in the climactic scene and the or... Or is it some weird delusion? Well, we talked about Well, that's the big question. What is with the weird thing that Dr. T does with his wedding ring? I'm assuming he's accepting that his wife is no longer his wife. She wants to leave him, and he's going to change, I guess? It's symbolic of something, a change happening with him. Yeah, right. And it's clear that that relationship is going to be no more. It's a weirdly trusting family. Yeah, but I don't think it's real. Do I like this movie because I think it's a so bad it's a secretly good when it's actually good? I don't think it's actually good, but I do think it's actually interesting. I agree with that. There's something to be said for wanting to watch it and talk about it. This is a Robert Altman-directed and rap-written movie with a plethora of great acting talent. Is there something here I am missing out on? Well, I think that's what everyone was wondering. Because when I say that it's interesting, and we covered this in the episode, I do think that there's something there, but I don't know that they did a good enough job at explaining what it is. If the audience is completely confounded and no one seems to be latching on to what your point was, then you kind of missed the mark. Uh, yeah, you may not have been clear enough in the execution. Now, when we get into some more film bro movies as we go on through the years, and I say that it doesn't matter how the audience reacts, that the that the artist is the only one that matters. At least in those instances, though, there's a significant portion of the audience that knows what, what the artist meant and doesn't think that Scorsese says that the guys in Goodfellas are cool and you should be like them or that Tyler Durden is actually the hero and you should model your life after him or whatever. Right, right. At least there's a part of the audience that knows that. Whereas with Dr. T, it doesn't seem like any part of the audience really knew how to take this. I think about this movie a lot, and for the life of me, I get more and more flabbergasted trying to reconcile the amount of talent in the cast and behind the camera with what I see, and I keep wondering what I am overlooking or missing. I don't think I have ever been more thoroughly mystified by a film. Thank you so much. That is true. It is a mystifying experience. Well, how about this, though? The follow-up after we posted it. Subject line, all caps, loved it, three exclamation points. Wow, all right. 
Zach and Matt, first off, my apologies for just now writing you guys back. This past couple of weeks has been insanely busy for me. I absolutely love the episode. It was like you guys had much the same reaction to Dr. T and the Women as I did, but you guys put more research into it. I saw it at the theater when it first came out and was staggered by it, almost wondering if I had hallucinated the whole movie because of the combination of the what the fuck did I just watch vibe and the way the film had such big name stars and then seemingly vanished almost without a trace in the pop culture scene. I am so happy with the results. I would definitely love to pay you guys to do a second episode. If there are any more listener request slots open in 2024, again, my apologies for being so busy. Well, it doesn't matter if you were busy. That's fine because that was great stuff. Mm -hmm. It provides context. Again, if you have sent in a listener request, I think it's fine to take the initiative and send us a follow-up if the movie seems weird. I think that's a pretty standard way of saying it. I don't know that Matt and I need a lot of guidance for all that jazz. We own the Blu-ray already. It's a classic film that's been in the National Registry. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards. I think I can pick up the thread myself. Uh When you're asking something that's a little bit off the beaten path or obscure or different or badly reviewed or something, it probably would help us a little bit to know an entry point as to what you're expecting and where we should be kind of guiding it. Well, in this case, it seems like we landed in the same spot. So thank you to Big Al. And yes, Al, we do have listener request slots left for 2024. So reach out to me. If you would like to follow up with another request, I will respond to this email, of course. But we've been busy. We've been traveling. (laughs) Anyway, thanks to Dr. Steven for the listener request. Thanks to Big Al for his last time and his follow-up emails. Dr. Steven, we'd love to hear from you as well, though. Don't feel like you you don't need to write us because I said that. But I'm saying that... If we all are being real and honest, there are differences between listener requests. Some we know why, and others right, we don't. Right. Dr. T and the Women was a movie neither of us had seen. So I right off the bat, heard of it. Matt didn't even know what it was. Yeah. Anyway, folks, we're going to wrap it up. We'll be back soon on Thanksgiving. Check out Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. <laughs> in theaters. Star 80, streaming somewhere. All that jazz on Tubi. Thank you so much for listening. Follow the show on X slash Twitter at Greatest Pod. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts slash Podbean or wherever you find us. There are probably some other places as well. We do have listener requests available for 2024. It's not unlimited. We have about eight slots left. At this point, you'd be looking more towards the middle of the year. But reach out, greatestpod at gmail.com or at greatestpod on X, and we will guide you through that process $50 for a movie up to two and a half hours $75 for a movie up to three hours those prices will go up to $100 for any movie starting in 2024 finally find us on Letterboxd Zach1983 and Matt Crosby oh and I guess you could ask for a sticker as well we got plenty of those to send you yeah we have some I'd say some yeah well there might be there might be more yeah Things happen. There might be new designs at some point. I have some merch ideas that I really want to do. Someday. Yeah. We'll get there. Long after the podcast yeah. has ended. <laughs> then we'll have time right. to exactly. focus on the yeah. merch. Once if it wasn't done. for all these cabin getaways. <laughs> the first time ever. <laughs> Although we should just buy this cabin and turn this into our recording studio and also live here. Yeah. I think that's on the table for us. We've met a lot of nice people. <laughs> 
<laughs> Folks, anyway, thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you on Thanksgiving. There's no business like show business like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. There's no people like show people. They smile when they are low. Yesterday they told you you would not go far. The night you opened and there you are. Next day on your dressing room they hung a star. Let's go. Costumes, the scenery, the makeup, the props, the audience that lifts you when you're down. The headaches, the heartaches, the backaches, the flops, the sheriff who escorts you out of town. The opening when your heart beats like a drum. The closing when the customers don't come. Like no business I know You get word before the show has started That your favorite uncle died at dawn On top of that your palm I have parted You're broken hearted But you go on There's no people like show people They smile when they are low Even with a turkey that you know will fold be stranded out in the cold. Still, you wouldn't change it for a sack of gold. Let's go on with the show. Let's go on with the show. Get that grundle. Right. If I don't feel your hand on my grundle, I don't know where your hand's at. <laughs>